Chapter 5 of The Life of David Brainerd by John Stiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. The Arduous Nature of a Missionary's Work. Mr. Brainerd's Residence with the Indians. His Method of Instructing Them. The State of His Mind. His Success. His Ordination. The following observations of Mr. Robinson on the disinterested conduct of Soren in devoting his talents and labors to his exiled countrymen at The Hague, apply with considerable force to those who become voluntary exiles in barbarous climes, that they may preach among the heathen the unsearchable riches of Christ. Quote, to dedicate oneself to the ministry in a wealthy, flourishing church, where rich benefices are every day becoming vacant, requires very little virtue, and sometimes only a strong propensity to vice. But to choose to be a minister in such a poor, banished, persecuted church as that of the French Protestants argues a noble contempt of the world and a supreme love to God and to the souls of men. These are the best testimonials, however, of a young minister whose profession is not to enrich, but to save himself and them that hear him. End quote. If there be a human creature who more strikingly resembles his Savior than any other upon earth, it is the faithful missionary, whom dangers and hardships cannot intimidate, who can welcome poverty and incessant toil of body and mind in the noble cause of benevolence and heavenly charity. Let the minister who is disposed to glory in the abundance of his labors behold the conduct of Brainerd and be humbled. Let the discontented view his sufferings and complain no more. Let the idle and careless contemplate his intense and unwearied application and be ashamed. It will be more interesting if he is suffered to tell his own tale. We shall, therefore, continue the narrative with a letter which, soon after his arrival at Conomique, he addressed to his brother John, and also with extracts from his diary. Letter. Conomique, April 30th, 1740. Dear brother, I should tell you I long to see you, but that my own experience has taught me, there is no happiness to be enjoyed in earthly friends, though ever so near and dear, or any other enjoyment that is not God himself. Therefore, if the God of all grace would be pleased graciously to afford us each his presence and grace, that we may perform the work and endure the trials he calls us to, in a tiresome wilderness, until we arrive at our journey's end, the distance at which we are held from each other at present is a matter of no great moment. But alas, the presence of God is what I want. I live in the most lonely, melancholy desert, about 18 miles from Albany. I board with a poor Scotchman. His wife can talk scarcely any English. My diet consists chiefly of hasty pudding, boiled corn, and bread baked in the ashes. My lodging is a little heap of straw laid upon some boards, a little way from the ground, for it is a log room without any floor that I lodge in. My work is exceeding hard. I travel on foot a mile and a half, the worst of the way, almost daily, and back again, for I live so far from my Indians. I have not seen an English person this month. These and many other circumstances, as uncomfortable, attend me, and yet my spiritual conflicts and distresses so far exceed all these that I scarcely think of them. The Lord grant that I may be enabled to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. As to my success here, I cannot say much. The Indians seem generally well disposed towards me and mostly very attentive to my instructions. Two or three are under some convictions, but there seems to be little of the special workings of the divine spirit among them yet, which gives me many a heart-singing hour. Sometimes I hope God has abundant blessings in store for them and me, but at other times I am so overwhelmed with distress that I cannot see how his dealings with me are consistent with covenant love and faithfulness, and I say, surely his tender mercies are clean gone forever. But however, I see I needed all this chastisement already. It is good for me that I have endured these trials. Do not be discouraged by my distress at Mr. Pomroy's when I saw you last. But God has been with me of a truth since that. But let us always remember that we must, through much tribulation, enter into God's eternal kingdom. The righteous are scarcely saved. It is an infinite wonder that we have hopes of being saved at all. 
For my part, I feel the most vile of any creature living, and I am sure there is not such another existing on this side hell. Now all you can do for me is to pray incessantly that God would make me humble, holy, resigned, and heavenly-minded by all my trials. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Let us run, wrestle, and fight, that we may obtain the prize and that complete happiness, to be holy as God is holy. So wishing and praying that you may advance in learning and grace, and be fit for special service for God, I remain your affectionate brother, David Brainerd. Friday, April 1st, 1743. I rode to Conomique, near 20 miles from Stockbridge, where the Indians live, with whom I am concerned, and there lodged on a little heap of straw, was greatly exercised with inward distresses all day, and in the evening my heart was sunk, and I seemed to have no God to go to. Oh, that God would help me. The place as to its situation was sufficiently lonesome and unpleasant, being encompassed with mountains and woods, twenty miles distant from any English inhabitants, six or seven from any Dutch, and more than two from a family that came some time since from the highlands of Scotland, and had then lived about two years in this wilderness. In this family I lodged about the space of three months, the master of it being the only person with whom I could readily converse in those parts, except my interpreter, others understanding very little English. April 7th. I appeared to myself exceeding ignorant, helpless and unworthy, and altogether unequal to my work. It seemed to me I should never do any service or have any success among the Indians. I was weary of life and longed for death beyond measure. When I thought of any godly soul departed, my soul was ready to envy him his privilege, thinking, Oh, when will my turn come? Must it be years first? But I know those desires rose partly for want of resignation to God. Towards night I had faith in prayer and some assistance in writing. Oh, that God would keep me near him. Eighth. I was exceedingly pressed under a sense of my party spirit in times past while I attempted to promote the cause of God. Its vile nature appeared in such odious colors that my very heart was pained. I saw how poor souls stumbled over it into everlasting destruction, and was constrained to make that prayer in the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. I saw my desert of hell on this account. My soul was full of anguish and shame before God that I had spent so much time in conversation, tending only to promote a party spirit. I saw that I had not suitably prized mortification, self-denial, resignation under all adversities, meekness, love, candor, and holiness of heart and life, and this day was almost wholly spent in such soul-afflicting reflections on my past conduct. Of late I have thought much of having the kingdom of Christ advanced in the world, but now I saw I had enough to do within myself. The Lord be merciful to me, a sinner, and wash my soul. Tenth. I preached to the Indians both forenoon and afternoon. They behaved soberly in general. Two or three appeared under some religious concern with whom I discoursed privately, and one told me her heart had cried ever since she heard me preach first. Thirteenth. My heart was overwhelmed within me. I verily thought I was the meanest, vilest, most helpless, ignorant creature living. And yet I knew what God had done for my soul, though sometimes I was assaulted with doubts whether it was possible for such a wretch as I to be in a state of grace. Twentieth. I set apart this day for fasting and prayer to bow my soul before God for grace, especially that all my inward distresses might be sanctified. I endeavored also to remember the goodness of God to me in the year past, this day being my birthday. I am now arrived at the age of twenty-five. My soul was pained to think of my barrenness and deadness, that I have lived so little to the glory of God. I spent the day in the woods alone, and there poured out my complaint to the Lord. Oh, that he would enable me to live to his glory for the future. After several weeks, I found my distance from the Indians a very great disadvantage to my work amongst them, and very burdensome to myself, as I was obliged to travel forward and backward almost daily on foot, having no pasture in which I could keep my horse for that purpose. And after all my pains, I could not be with the Indians in the evening and morning, which were usually the best hours to find them at home, and when they could best attend my instructions. I therefore resolved to remove and live with or near the Indians that I might watch all opportunities when they were generally at home, 
and take the advantage of such seasons for their instruction. According, I removed soon after, and for a time lived with them in one of their wigwams, and not long after built me a small house where I spent the remainder of that year entirely alone, my interpreter, who was an Indian, choosing rather to live in a wigwam among his own countrymen. But although the difficulties of this solitary way of living are not the least, yet I can truly say the burden I felt respecting my great work among the poor Indians, the fear and concern that continually hung upon my spirit, lest they should be prejudiced against Christianity by means of the insinuations of some who, although they are called Christians, seem to have no concern for Christ's kingdom, but had rather the Indians should remain heathens, that they may, with more ease, cheat and enrich themselves by them. The fear and concern I felt in these respects were much more pressing to me than all the difficulties that attended the circumstances of my living. As to the state or temper of mind in which I found these Indians at my first coming among them, it was much more encouraging than what appears among those who are altogether uncultivated. Their jealousies and suspicions and their prejudices against Christianity were, in a great measure, removed by the long-continued labors of the Reverend Mr. Sargent, among a number of the same tribe, in a place more than twenty miles distant, by which means these were, in some good degree, prepared to entertain the truths of Christianity, instead of objecting against them, and appearing entirely untractable, as is common with them at first, and as these appeared a few years ago, some of them were well disposed toward religion, and seemed the much pleased with my coming among them. The following extract touches the heart, and we cannot but sincerely wish that he had been blessed with a brother and companion in labors. When the compassionate Redeemer sent forth his disciples, he sent them two and two. He knew their frame and would not unnecessarily expose them to hardships when they were surrounded with so many that were unavoidable. May 18th. My circumstances are such that I have no comfort of any kind but what I have in God. I live in the most lonesome wilderness, have but one single person to converse with that can speak English. Most of the talk I hear is either Highland Scotch or Indian. I had no fellow Christian to whom I might unbosom myself and lay open my spiritual sorrows, and with whom I might take sweet counsel in conversation about heavenly things and join in prayer. I live poorly with respect to the comforts of life. Most of them consist of boiled corn and hasty pudding. I lodge on a bundle of straw, my labor is hard, and I have little appearance of success. The Indians' affairs are very difficult, having no land to live on but what the Dutch threaten to drive them from. They have no regard to the souls of the poor Indians, and they hate me because I come to preach to them. But that which makes all my difficulties grievous to be borne is that God hides his face from me. Ever active in the cause of his divine master, it struck him that a young Indian, his interpreter, who had been instructed in the Christian religion by Mr. Sargent of Stockbridge, and also by Mr. Williams of Longmeadow, at the charge of Mr. Hollis of London, would greatly assist him in the capacity of schoolmaster, and to get him appointed to this office on the 30th of May, though in a very weak state of body, and miserably dejected in mind, be set out on a journey to New Jersey to consult the commissioners on the subject. This journey he performed in four days, accomplished his object, and spent a week in different places with his friends. On the Monday following, he rode about 60 miles to New Haven and attempted a reconciliation with his college in vain. His trivial crime seemed, in the estimation of the governors, to have it upon the, quote, primal curse of heaven, end quote, and for them he might be a wanderer and a vagabond. However, this failure did not deter him, soon after, from making another attempt. He felt that he had erred, and sought forgiveness with the meekness of a Christian, and we blush to record again without success. On the 30th of July, he moved into the house which he had erected, and though it must have been a miserable hovel, thus he expresses his satisfaction with such an abode, and an extract or two will discover to us the state of his mind, and will afford us some idea of the difficulties with which he had continually to struggle. Saturday, July 30th. Just at night, I moved into my own house and lodged there that night, found it much better spending the time alone in my own house than in the wigwam, where I was before. Lord's Day, July 31st. Felt more comfortably than some days past. Blessed be the Lord that has now given me a place of retirement. Oh, that I might find God in it, and that he would dwell with me forever. August 3rd. Spent most of the day in writing, enjoyed some sense of religion. 
Through divine goodness, I am now uninterruptedly alone and find my retirement comfortable. Fourth, was enabled to pray much through the whole day and through divine goodness found some intenseness of soul in the duty as I used to do and some ability to persevere in my supplications, had some apprehensions of divine things that were engaging and that gave me some courage and resolution. It is good, I find, to persevere in attempts to pray if I cannot pray with perseverance, i.e., continue long in my addresses to the divine being. I have generally found that the more I do in secret prayer, the more I have delighted to do and have enjoyed more of the spirit of prayer, and frequently have found the contrary when with journeying or otherwise I have been much deprived of retirement." A seasonable, steady performance of secret duties in their proper hours and a careful improvement of all time, filling up every hour with some profitable labor, either of heart, head, or hands, are excellent means of spiritual peace and boldness before God. Christ, indeed, is our peace, and by Him we have boldness of access to God. But a good conscience, void of offense, is an excellent preparative for an approach into the Divine Presence. There is a difference between self-confidence and a self-righteous pleasing ourselves with our own duties, attainments, and spiritual enjoyments, which godly persons sometimes are guilty of, and that holy confidence arising from the testimony of a good conscience, which Hezekiah had when he says, Remember, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart. Then, says the holy psalmist, shall I not be ashamed when I have respect to all thy commandments? Filling up our time with and for God is the way to rise up and lie down in peace. In my weak state of body, I was not a little distressed for want of suitable food. I had no bread, nor could I get any. I am forced to go or send 10 or 15 miles for all the bread I eat, and sometimes it is moldy and sour before I eat it, if I get any considerable quantity, and then again I have none for some days together for want of an opportunity to send for it. And this was the case now, but through divine goodness I had some Indian meal of which I made little cakes and fried them. And I felt contented with my circumstances and sweetly resigned to God. In prayer I enjoyed great freedom and blessed God as much for my present circumstances as if I had been a king, and I never feel comfortably. But when I find my soul going forth after God, if I cannot be holy, I must be miserable forever. 21st. I fell down before the Lord and groaned under my own vileness, barrenness, deadness, and felt as if I was guilty of soul murder in speaking to immortal souls in such a manner as I had done. I was very ill and full of pain in the evening, and my soul mourned that I had spent so much time to so little profit. 22. I had intense and passionate breathings of soul after holiness and very clear manifestations of my utter inability to procure or work it in myself. It is wholly owing to the power of God. Oh, with what tenderness the love and desire of holiness fills the soul. I wanted to wing out myself to God, or rather to get a conformity to Him, but alas, I cannot add to my stature in grace one cubit. However, my soul can never leave striving for it, or at least groaning that it cannot obtain more purity of heart. 23rd. I poured out my soul for all the world, friends and enemies. My soul was concerned for Christ's kingdom, that it might appear in the whole earth, and I abhorred the very thought of a party in religion. Let the truth of God appear wherever it is, and God shall have the glory forever. 25th. I find it impossible to enjoy peace and tranquility of mind without a careful improvement of time. This is really an imitation of God and Christ Jesus. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work, says our Lord. Be still, if we would be like God, we must see that we fill up our time for Him. I daily long to dwell in perfect light and love. In the meantime, my soul mourns that I make so little progress in grace and preparation for the world of blessedness. I see and know that I am a very barren tree in God's vineyard, and that He might justly say, cut it down. Oh, that God would make me more lively and vigorous in grace for His own glory. 28th. I was much perplexed with some Dutchmen. All their discourse turned upon the things of the world. Oh, what a hell it would be to spend an eternity with such men. Well might David say, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved. But adored be God, heaven is a place into which no unclean thing enters. Oh, I long for the holiness of that world. 
Lord, prepare me for it. About this time he undertook a journey to New York and in September rode once more to New Haven, at the time of commencement, a time as we have before observed when many of his fellow students were to take their degree, and when, had he not been cruelly expelled, he would not only have shared in their honors but appeared at the head of the class. Thus he sweetly writes on the subject. Whereas I have said before several persons concerning Mr. Whittlesey, that I did not believe he had any more grace than the chair I then leaned upon, I humbly confess that herein I have sinned against God and acted contrary to the rules of his word, and have injured Mr. Whittlesey. I had no right to make thus free with his character and had no just reason to say as I did concerning him. My fault herein was the more aggravated in that I said this concerning one that was so much my superior, and one that I was obliged to treat with special respect and honor, by reason of the relation I stood in to him in the college. Such a manner of behavior, I confess, did not become a Christian. It was taking too much upon me and did not savor that of humble respect that I ought to have expressed towards Mr. Whittlesey. I have long since been convinced of the falseness of those apprehensions by which I then justified such a conduct. I have often reflected on this act with grief. I hope on account of the sin of it, and am willing to lie low and be abased before God and man for it, and humbly ask the forgiveness of the governors of the college and of the whole society, but of Mr. Whittlesey in particular. And whereas I have been accused of saying concerning the rector of Yale College that I wondered he did not expect to drop down dead for finding the scholars that followed Mr. Tennant to Milford, I seriously profess that I do not remember my saying anything to this purpose. But if I did, I utterly condemn it and detest all such kind of behavior. And I now appear to judge and condemn myself for going once to the separate meeting in New Haven, though the rector had refused to give me leave. For this I humbly ask the rector's forgiveness. And whether the governors of the college shall ever see cause to remove the academical censure I lie under or no, yet I am willing to appear, if they think fit, openly to own and to humble myself for those things I have herein confessed. God has made me willing to do anything that I can do consistent with truth for the sake of peace, and that I might not be a stumbling block and offense to others. For this reason, I can cheerfully give up what I verily believe, after the most impartial search is my right. God has given me that disposition, that if this were the case, that a man has done me an hundred injuries, and I, though ever so much provoked to it, have done him one, I am heartily willing, humbly to confess my fault to him, and on my knees to ask forgiveness of him, though at the same time he should justify himself in all the injuries he has done me, and should only make use of my humble confession to blacken my character the more, and represent me as the only person guilty. Yea, though he should, as it were, insult me, and say, He knew all this before, and that I was making work for repentance. Though what I said concerning Mr. Whittlesey was only spoken in private to a friend or two, and being partly overheard was related to the rector, and by him extorted from my friends, yet seeing it was divulged and made public, I was willing to confess my fault therein publicly. For this purpose he went to New Haven at the time we have mentioned, and President Edwards thus commends his spirit and conduct on this occasion. Quote, I was witness to the very Christian spirit Mr. Brainerd showed at that time, being then at New Haven, and being one that he saw fit to consult on that occasion. This was the first time that ever I had an opportunity of personal acquaintance with him. There appeared in him a great degree of calmness and humility, without the least appearance of rising spirit for any ill treatment he had suffered, or the least backwards to abase himself before them whom he thought had wronged him. What he did was without any objection or appearance of reluctance, even in private to his friends. End quote. During his short residence at Conomique, it is astonishing how various and how constant his exertions were. He was in journeyings oft, and his labors were abundant. When with the Indians, he discoursed to them on the most important subjects of theology, and frequently catechized them. And when we consider that he had a very slight acquaintance with their language, that he was obliged to teach them by an interpreter, that he had to manage their temporal concerns, and often to arbitrate between them in their petty disagreements, and when added to this, we also recollect 
that the objects of his more than parental care were untutored savages, we must be filled with amazement at the difficulties which he had to encounter and at the patient perseverance by which he surmounted them during the whole of the term. It should also be remembered that his health was very precarious, his constitution delicate, and that he often struggled with very severe indisposition. For a considerable part of the time we are informed that amidst his other labors he applied himself closely to the study of the Indian language, and that he might enjoy the advantage of a tutor, he often rode in the depths of winter a distance of twenty miles backwards and forwards through the uninhabited woods between Stockbridge and Conomique. His inward conflicts, trials, and enjoyments during his residence at Conomique will appear from the following extracts from his diary. October 4th. This day I rode home to my own house and people. The poor Indians appeared very glad of my return. I presently fell on my knees and blessed God for my safe return. I have taken many considerable journeys since this time last year, and yet God has never suffered one of my bones to be broken or any distressing calamity to befall me, though I have been often exposed to cold and hunger in the wilderness where the comforts of life were not to be had have frequently been lost in the woods, and sometimes obliged to ride much of the night, and once lay out in the woods all night. Sixteenth, I retired and poured out my soul to God with much freedom, and yet in anguish, to find myself so unspeakably sinful and unworthy before a holy God. I was now much resigned under God's dispensations towards me, though my trials had been very great. But thought whether I could be resigned if God should let the French Indians come upon me, and deprive me of my life, or carry me away captive, though I knew of no special reason than to propose this trial to myself. And my soul seemed so far to rest in God, that the sting and terror of these things was gone. Presently after I received the following letter by a messenger sent on purpose, quote, Sir, just now we received advices from Colonel Stoddard that there is the utmost danger of a rupture with France. He has received the same from our governor, ordering him to give notice to all the exposed places that they may secure themselves the best they can against any sudden invasion. We thought best to send directly to Conomique, that you may take the prudentest measures for your safety. I am, sir, etc. I thought it came in a good season, for my heart seemed fixed on God, therefore I was not surprised. But this news only made me more serious and taught me that I must not please myself with any of the comforts of life which I had been preparing. 23rd. I had some freedom and warmth both parts of the day, and my people were very attentive. In the evening two or three came to me under concern for their souls, to whom I was enabled to discourse closely, and with some earnestness and desire. 31st. My soul was so lifted up to God that I could pour out my desires to Him, for more grace and further degrees of sanctification with abundant freedom. I longed to be more abundantly prepared for that blessedness with which I was then in some measure refreshed. November 3rd. I spent this day in secret fasting and prayer from morning till night. Early in the morning I had some assistance in prayer. Afterwards I read the story of Elijah the prophet. My soul was much moved observing the faith, zeal, and power of that holy man and how he wrestled with God in prayer. I then cried with Elisha, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? I longed for more faith. My soul breathed after God and pleaded with him that a double portion of that spirit which was given to Elijah might rest on me, and I saw God is the same that he was in the days of Elijah. I was enabled to wrestle with God by prayer in a more affectionate, humble, and importunate manner than I have for many months past. Nothing seemed too hard for God to perform, nothing too great for me to hope for from Him. I had for many months lost all hopes of doing any special service for God in the world. It appeared impossible that one so vile should be thus employed for God. But at this time God was pleased to revive this hope. Afterwards I read the third chapter of Exodus, and on to the twentieth, and saw more of the glory and majesty of God discovered in those chapters than ever I had seen before. Frequently, in the meantime, falling on my knees and crying to God for the faith of Moses and for a manifestation of the divine glory. My soul was ardent in prayer and I was enabled to wrestle for myself, for my friends, and for the church. I felt more desire to see the power of God in the conversion of souls than I have done for a long season. Blessed be God for this season of fasting and prayer. May his goodness always abide with me and draw my soul to him. Seventh. 
This morning my mind was solemn, fixed, affectionate, and ardent in desires after holiness, and felt full of tenderness and love. My affection seemed to be dissolved into kindness and softness. My soul longed after God and cried to Him with that filial freedom, reverence, and boldness. Oh, that I might be entirely consecrated and devoted to God. December 3rd, I rode home to my house and people. Suffered much with extreme cold. I trust I shall ere long arrive where my toils shall cease. 5th, I rode to Stockbridge, but was almost outdone with the extreme cold. I had some refreshing meditations by the way, but was barren and lifeless much of the day. Thus my days roll away with but little done for God, and this is my burden. Sixth, I was perplexed to see the vanity and levity of professed Christians, but I spent the evening with a Christian friend that was able to sympathize with me in my spiritual conflicts. Eighth, my mind was lost with different affections. I was looking round in the world to see if there was not some happiness to be derived from it. God and some objects in the world seemed each to invite my heart, and my soul was distracted between them. I have not been so beset for a long time with relation to some objects which I thought myself most dead to. But while I was desiring to please myself with anything below, sorrow and perplexity attended the first motions of desire. I found no peace or deliverance from this distraction till I found access to the throne of grace, and as soon as I had any sense of God, the allurements of the world vanished. But my soul mourned over my folly that I should desire any pleasure but in God. God forgive my spiritual idolatry. 26th. I rode to Stockbridge, but was very much fatigued with my journey, wherein I underwent great hardship, being much exposed and very wet by falling into a river. I spent the day and evening without much sense of divine things, but perplexed with wandering thoughts. 29th. I had spent the day mainly in conversing with friends, yet enjoyed little satisfaction, because I could find but few disposed to converse of heavenly things. Alas, what are the things of this world to afford satisfaction to the soul? I blessed God for retirement and that I am not always exposed to company. Oh, that I could live in the secret of God's presence. Lord's Day, January 1st, 1743. Of a truth, God has been gracious to me the last year, though he has caused me to pass through many sorrows. He has provided for me bountifully so that I have been enabled in about 15 months past to bestow to charitable uses about an hundred pounds. Blessed be the Lord that he has so far used me as his steward to distribute a portion of his goods. May I always remember that all I have comes from God. Blessed be the Lord that has carried me through all the toils, fatigues, and hardships of the year past. Oh, that I could begin this year with God and spend the whole of it to his glory, either in life or death. Third, my time passes away so swiftly that I am astonished when I reflect how little I do in it. My state of solitude does not make the hours hang heavy upon my hands. Oh, what reason of thankfulness have I on account of this retirement? I do not lead a Christian life when I am abroad and cannot spend time in devotion, Christian conversation, and meditation. Those weeks that I am obliged to be from home in order to learn the Indian tongue are mostly spent in barrenness, and I feel myself a stranger to the throne of grace. When I return home and give myself to meditation, prayer, and fasting, a new scene opens and my soul longs for mortification, self-denial, humility, and divorcement from all the things of the world. Fourth, time appeared a moment, life a vapor, and all its enjoyments as empty bubbles and fleeting blasts of wind. Sixth, feeling my extreme weakness and want of grace, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer. My soul intensely longed that the dreadful spots and stains of my sin may be washed away. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things. My resolution for a life of mortification, continual watchfulness, self-denial, seriousness, and devotion to God were strong and fixed. My desires ardent and intense, my conscience tender and afraid of every appearance of evil. My soul was grieved with the reflection on my past levity and want of resolution for God. I solemnly renewed my dedication of myself to God and longed for grace to enable me always to keep covenant with Him. February 2nd. I spent this day in fasting and prayer, seeking the presence and assistance of God, that He would enable me to overcome all my corruptions and spiritual enemies. 7th. 
I was much engaged in meditation on the powers and affections of the godly soul in the pursuit of their beloved object, wrote something of the native language of spiritual sensation in its soft and tender whispers, declaring that it now feels and tastes that the Lord is gracious, that he is the supreme good, the only satisfying happiness, that he is a complete, sufficient, and almighty portion, saying, quote, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Oh, I feel it is heaven to please him, and to be just what he would have me to be. Oh, that my soul were holy as he is holy. Oh, that it were pure even as Christ is pure, and perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. These, I feel, are the sweetest commands in God's book comprising all others. And shall I break them? Must I break them? Am I under a necessity of it as long as I live in the world? No. O oh, my soul, woe is me that I am a sinner, because I grieve and offend this blessed God, who is infinite in goodness and grace. O oh, methinks if he would punish me for my sins, it would not wound my heart so deep as to offend him. But though I sin continually, yet he continually repeats his kindness to me. I could bear any suffering, but how can I bear to grieve and dishonor this blessed God? How shall I yield ten thousand times more honor to him? What shall I do to glorify this best of beings? Oh, that I could consecrate myself, soul, and body to his service forever. Oh, that I could give up myself to him, so as never more to attempt to be my own, or to have any will or affections that are not perfectly conformed to him. Oh, ye angels, do ye glorify him incessantly, and if possible, prostrate yourselves lower before the blessed King of heaven? I long to bear a part with you, and if it were possible, to help you. Oh, when we have done all that we can, to all eternity, we shall not be able to offer the ten thousandth part of the homage that the glorious God deserves. End quote. Tenth. I was exceedingly oppressed with shame, grief, and fear, under a sense of my past folly. When God sets before me my misconduct, especially any instances of misguided zeal, it sinks my soul into shame and confusion. I have no confidence to hold up my face even before my fellow worms, but only when my soul confides in God and I find the sweet temper of Christ, the spirit of humility, solemnity, and mortification, alive in my soul. Friday, March 2nd. I never felt so much love to my enemies, though at the time I found such a disposition that I scarce knew how to think that any such thing as enmity lodged in my soul. It seemed as if all the world must needs be friends, and never prayed with more freedom and delight for myself, or dearest friend, than I did now for them. Saturday, March 3rd. I spent an hour in prayer with great intenseness and freedom, and with the most soft and tender affection towards mankind. I longed that those who I have reason to think owe me ill will might be eternally happy. It seemed refreshing to think of meeting them in heaven, how much soever they had injured me on earth. I had no disposition to insist upon any confession from them in order to reconciliation and the exercise of love and kindness to them. Oh, it is an emblem of heaven to love all the world with a love of kindness, forgiveness, and benevolence, to feel our souls sedate, mild, and meek, to be void of all evil, surmisings, and suspicions and scarce able to think evil of any man upon any occasion, to find our hearts simple, open, and free, to those who look upon us with a different eye. Tenth, I felt exceeding dead to the world and all its enjoyments. I was ready to give up life and all its comforts as soon as called to it, and yet then had as much comfort of life as almost ever I had. Life itself appeared but an empty bubble, the riches, honors, and enjoyments of it extremely tasteless. I longed to be entirely crucified to all things here below. My soul was sweetly resigned to God's disposal of me, and I saw there had nothing happened to me but what was best for me. I confided in God that he would never leave me, though I should walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It was my meat and drink to be holy, to live to the Lord, and die to the Lord. And then I enjoyed such a heaven, as far exceeded the most sublime conceptions of an unregenerate soul, and even unspeakably beyond what I myself could conceive at another time. I did not wonder that Peter said, Lord, it is good to be here, when thus refreshed with divine glories. My soul was full of love and tenderness in the duty of intercession, especially of sweet affection to some godly ministers. 
I prayed earnestly for those I have reason to fear are my enemies, and could not have spoken a word of bitterness or entertained a bitter thought against the vilest man living. I had a sense of my own great unworthiness. My soul seemed to breathe forth love and praise to God afresh, when I thought he would let his children love and receive me as one of their brethren and fellow citizens. And when I thought of their treating me in that manner, I longed to lie at their feet, and could think of no way to express the sincerity and simplicity of my love and esteem of them as being much better than myself. I longed to get on my knees and ask forgiveness of everybody that ever had seen anything amiss in my past conduct, especially in my religious zeal. Lord's Day, March 11th. I preached from the parable of the sower, had some freedom, affection, and fervency in addressing my poor people, longing that God should take hold of their hearts and make them spiritually alive. And indeed, I had so much to say to them that I knew not how to leave off speaking. The particular method which Mr. Brainerd pursued in conveying instruction to the Indians will appear from part of a letter in which he addresses to Mr. Pemberton. In my labors with them, to turn them from darkness to light, I studied what was most plain and easy and best suited to their capacities, and endeavored to set before them, from time to time, as they were able to receive them, the most important and necessary truths of Christianity, such as most immediately concerned their speedy conversion to God, and such as I had judged the greatest tendency, as means, to effect that glorious change in them but especially I made it the scope and drift of all my labors to lead them into a thorough acquaintance with these two things. First, the sinfulness and misery of the estate they were naturally in, the evil of their hearts, the pollution of their natures, the heavy guilt they were under, and their exposedness to everlasting punishment. As also their utter inability to save themselves, either from their sins or from those miseries which are the just punishment of them, and their unworthiness of any mercy at the hand of God on account of anything they themselves could do to procure his favor, and consequently their extreme need of Christ to save them. And secondly, I frequently endeavored to open to them the fullness, all-sufficiency, and freeness of that redemption which the Son of God hath wrought out by his obedience and sufferings for perishing sinners. How this provision he had made was suited to all their wants, and how he called and invited them to accept of everlasting life freely, notwithstanding all their sinfulness, inability, unworthiness, etc. After I had been with the Indians several months, I composed sundry forms of prayer adapted to their circumstances and capacities, which with the help of my interpreter I translated into the Indian language, and soon learned to pronounce their words so as to pray with them in their own tongue. I also translated sundry psalms into their language, and soon after we were able to sing in the worship of God. When my people had gained some acquaintance with many of the truths of Christianity, so that they were capable of receiving and understanding many others which, at first, could not be taught them, by reason of their ignorance of those that were necessary to be previously known, and upon which others depended, I then gave them an historical account of God's dealing with his ancient professing people, the Jews, some of the rites and ceremonies they were obliged to observe, as their sacrifices, etc., and what these were designed to represent to them, as also some of the surprising miracles God wrought for their salvation, while they trusted on him, and the sore punishments he sometimes brought upon them when they forsook and sinned against him. Afterwards I proceeded to give them a relation of the birth, life, miracles, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Christ, as well as his ascension and the wonderful effusion of the Holy Spirit consequent thereupon. And having thus endeavored to prepare the way by such a general account of things, I next proceeded to read and expound to them the Gospel of Matthew, at least the substance of it, in course, wherein they had a more distinct and particular view of what they had before some general notion of. These expositions I attended almost every evening, when there was any considerable number of them at home, except when I was obliged to be absent myself in order to learn the Indian language with the Reverend Mr. Sargent. Besides these means of instruction, there was likewise an English school constantly kept by my interpreter among the Indians, which I used frequently to visit in order to give the children and young people some proper instructions and serious exhortations suited to their age. The degree of knowledge to which some of them attained was considerable. Many of the truths of Christianity seemed fixed in their minds, especially in some instances, so that they could speak to me of themselves and ask such questions about them as were necessary to render them more plain and clear to their understandings. 
The children also, and young people, who attended the school made considerable proficiency, at least some of them, in their learning, so that, had they understood the English language well, they would have been able to read somewhat readily in a Psalter. But that which was most of all desirable, and gave me the greatest encouragement amidst many difficult and disconsolate hours, was that the truth of God's word seemed at times to be attended with some power upon the hearts and consciences of the Indians. And especially this appeared evident in a few instances who were awakened to some sense of their miserable estate by nature and appeared solicitous for deliverance from it. Several of them came of their own accord to discourse with me about their soul's concern and some with tears inquired what they should do to be saved and whether the God that Christians served would be merciful to those who had been frequently drunk, etc., and although I cannot say I have satisfactory evidences of their being renewed in the spirit of their minds and savingly converted to God, yet the Spirit of God did, I apprehended, in such a manner, attended the means of grace, and so operate upon their minds thereby, as might justly afford matter of encouragement to hope that God designed good to them, and that He was preparing His way into their souls. There likewise appeared a reformation in the lives and manners of the Indians." Their idolatrous sacrifices, of which there was but one or two that I know of, after my coming among them, were wholly laid aside, and their heathenish custom of dancing, hallooing, etc., thus seemed in a considerable measure broken off from. And I could not but hope that they were reformed in some measure from the sin of drunkenness. They likewise manifested a regard to the Lord's day, and not only behaved soberly themselves, but took care also to keep their children in order. Yet after all, I must confess, that as there were many hopeful appearances among them, so there were some things more discouraging, and while I rejoiced to observe any seriousness and concern among them about the affairs of their souls, still I was not without continual fear and concern, lest such encouraging appearances might prove like a morning cloud that passeth away. Mr. Brainerd continued at Conomique about a year. And as the Indians there were few in number, he persuaded them to remove to Stockbridge, that they might enjoy the benefit of Mr. Sargent's ministrations. For himself, he thought, quote, he might do more service for Christ in a field where he should enjoy full scope for his exertions, end quote. His account of his first intimating his intention to his sable flock is affecting, quote, I informed them, says he, that I expected to leave them in the spring then approaching, and to be sent to another tribe of Indians at a great distance from them. Upon hearing of which they appeared very sorrowful, and some of them endeavored to persuade me to continue with them, urging that they had now heard so much about their soul's concern that they could never more be willing to live as they had done, without a minister, and further instructions in the way to heaven. Whereupon I told them they ought to be willing that others also should hear about their soul's concern, seeing those needed it as much as themselves. Yet further to dissuade me from going, they added, that those Indians to whom I had thought of going, as they had heard, were not willing to become Christians as they were, and therefore urged me to tarry with them. I then told them that they might receive further instruction without me, but the Indians to whom I expected to be sent could not, there being no minister near to teach them. End quote. In order to further this design, which he had thus made known to his people, Mr. Brainerd determined on another journey to New Jersey, that he might state his views to the commissioners. They accordingly met him at Elizabethtown and resolved, quote, that he should forthwith leave Conomique and go to Delaware, end quote. And with this resolution, he cheerfully complied. His compliance on this occasion, when all circumstances are considered, reflects the highest honor upon his character. He did not rush, like the inexperienced war horse, into the battle. He was not influenced by the fervor of youth, which overlooks difficulties in the pursuit of a favorite object, which bestrews an untrodden path with flowers while it forgets the briars and the thorns. The novelty of the thing had also worn away. Brainerd knew from experience the nature of a missionary life. For a year he had been placed in the most untoward circumstances. Shut out from society, destitute of every earthly comfort, he had to struggle with the ignorance and depravity of barbarians, and in the work dear to his heart he received also very little encouragement. Yet notwithstanding all this bitter experience, he was willing to encounter the same and greater hardships. He drank into the apostolic spirit, and the noble language of Paul was the language of his conduct. Quote, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course with joy. End quote. 
Had he been disposed, he could have made the retreat honorable, especially as at this period he received two very pressing invitations to the pastoral office, and one was from East Hampton, the finest, pleasantest town in Long Island, and one of its largest and most wealthy parishes. But the charms of civilized society, the intercourse of Christian friendship, the prospect of emolument and honor among men, were all lost upon the devoted spirit of Brainerd. To these he preferred a wigwam among brutish savages, an exile from his native land, the loneliness of a dreary solitude, the difficulties and intense labors of an Indian mission. Having resolved on the field of his subsequent labors, he returned to Conomique to prepare for his final departure. And when he had settled his affairs, he commenced a long and dreary journey to the Forks of Delaware. An extract from his diary and from his letter to Mr. Pemberton, before quoted, will describe all that occurred of importance during this journey, as well as the manner in which he was received among the Indians to whom he was sent. May 1st, having received new orders to go to the Indians on Delaware River in Pennsylvania, and my people here being mostly removed to Mr. Sargent's, I this day took all my clothes, books, etc., and disposed of them, and set out for Delaware River, but made it in my way to return to Mr. Sargent's, which I did this day, just at night. I rode several hours in the rain through the howling wilderness, although I was so disordered in body that little or nothing but blood came from me. Tuesday, May 8th. I spent much of my time while riding in prayer that God would go with me to Delaware. My heart sometimes was ready to sink with the thoughts of my work, and going alone in the wilderness I knew not where, but still it was comfortable to think that others of God's children had, quote, wandered about in caves and dens of the earth, end quote, and Abraham, when he was called to go forth, quote, went out, not knowing whither he went, end quote. On May 10th, I met with a number of Indians in a place called Minnesinics, about 140 miles from Conomique, and directly in my way to the Delaware River. With these Indians, I spent some time first addressing their king in a friendly manner, and after some discourse, I told him I had a desire to instruct them in Christianity, at which he laughed, turned his back upon me, and went away. I then addressed another principal man in the same manner, who said he was willing to hear me. After some time, I followed the king into his house and renewed my discourse to him, but he declined talking and left the affair to another, who appeared to be a rational man. He talked very warmly and inquired why I desired the Indians to become Christians, seeing the Christians were so much worse than the Indians. The Christians, he said, would lie, steal, and drink worse than the Indians. It was they that first taught the Indians to be drunk, and they stole from one another to that degree that the rulers were obliged to hang them for it, and that was not sufficient to deter others from the like practice. But the Indians, he added, were none of them ever hanged for stealing, and he supposed that if the Indians should become Christians, they then would be as bad as these. He added that they would live as their fathers lived and go to their fathers when they died. I then freely owned, lamented, and joined in condemning the ill conduct of some who are called Christians, told them these were not Christians in heart, that I hated such wicked practices and did not desire the Indians to become such as these. When he appeared calmer, I asked him if he was willing that I should come and see them again. He replied he should be willing to see me again as a friend, if I would not desire them to become Christians. I then bid them farewell and prosecuted my journey towards Delaware. May 13th, I arrived at a place called by the Indians Sakhawatong, within the forks of Delaware in Pennsylvania. Here also, when I came to the Indians, I saluted their king in a manner I thought most engaging, and soon after informed him of my desire to instruct them in the Christian religion. After he had consulted a few minutes with two or three old men, he told me he was willing to hear. I then preached to those few that were present who appeared very attentive, and the king in particular seemed both to wonder and at the same time to be well pleased with what I taught them respecting the divine being. And since that time he has ever shown himself friendly to me, giving me free liberty to preach in his house whenever I think fit. Here, therefore, I spent the greater part of the summer preaching usually in the king's house. The number of Indians in this place is but small. Most of those that formerly belonged here are removed far back into the country. There are not more than ten houses hereabouts that continue to be inhabited, and some of these are several miles distant from others, which makes it difficult for the Indians to meet together so frequently as could be desired. When I first began to preach here, the number of hearers was very small, often not exceeding twenty or twenty-five persons, 
but towards the latter part of the summer their number increased, so that I have frequently had forty persons or more at once, and of the most of these belonging to those parts. The effects which the truths of God's word have had upon some of the Indians in this place are somewhat encouraging. Sundry of them are brought to renounce idolatry, and to decline partaking of those feasts which they used to offer in sacrifice to certain supposed unknown powers and some few instances among them have for a considerable time manifested a serious concern for their soul's eternal welfare, and still continue to inquire the way to Zion, with such diligence, affection, and becoming solicitude as gives me reason to hope that God, who I trust, has begun this work in them, will carry it on until it shall issue in their saving conversion to himself. These not only detest their old idolatrous notions, but strive also to bring their friends off from them. And as they are seeking salvation for their own souls, so they seem desirous, and some of them take pains, that others might be excited to do the like. Lord's Day, May 13th. I rose very early, felt very poorly after my long journey, and after being wet and fatigued. I have scarce ever seen such a gloomy morning in my life. There appeared to be no Sabbath. The children were all at play. I, a stranger in the wilderness, and knew not where to go and all circumstances seeming to conspire to render my affairs dark and discouraging, I mourned after the presence of God and seemed like a creature banished from his sight. Yet he was pleased to support my sinking soul amidst all my sorrows, so that I never entertained any thought of quitting my business among the poor Indians, but was comforted to think that death would ere long set me free from these distresses. I rode out about three miles to the Irish people, where I found some that appeared sober and concerned about religion, my heart then began to be a little encouraged. I preached first to the Irish and then to the Indians. In the evening was a little comforted. My soul seemed to rest on God and take courage. Oh, that the Lord would be my support and comforter in an evil world. Fourteenth. I felt myself loose from all the world. All appeared vanity and vexation of a spirit. I seemed lonesome as if I was banished from all mankind and bereaved of all that is called pleasurable in the world but appeared to myself so vile and unworthy it seemed fitter for me to be here than anywhere else. Seventeenth, I was greatly distressed with a sense of my vileness, appearing to myself too bad to walk on God's earth. God was pleased to let me see my inward pollution to such a degree that I almost despaired of being made holy. In the afternoon I met with the Indians and preached to them. My soul seemed to confide in God and had some enlargement in prayer. Vital piety and holiness appeared sweet to me, and I longed for the perfection of it. May 20th. I preached to the poor Indians and enjoyed some freedom in speaking. My soul longed for assistance from above, all the while, for I saw I had no strength for that work. Afterwards I preached to the Irish people, and several seemed much concerned with whom I discoursed afterwards with freedom and power. Blessed be God for any assistance to an unworthy worm. 27th. I visited my Indians in the morning, and attending upon a funeral among them was affected to see their heathenish practices. Oh, that they might be turned from darkness to light. Afterwards, I got a considerable number of them together and preached to them and observed them very attentive. I then preached to the white people, and several seemed much concerned, especially one who had been educated a Roman Catholic. Blessed be the Lord for any help. In this situation, Mr. Brainerd did not continue a month before he was summoned to Newark to meet the Presbytery, who were engaged solemnly to designate him to his office as missionary among the Indians. The day of ordination is a memorable era in the life of a minister. It is a period to which he usually looks forward with trembling apprehension, the approach of which leads him to the most serious self-scrutiny as to his motives, his qualifications, his call to the work, and, quote, the necessity that is laid upon him, end quote and the review of which, after it is passed, often agitates him with the mixed sensations of shame and gratitude, and every minister will sympathize with him in the following disclosure of his feelings on this occasion. June 11th. This day the Presbytery met at Newark in order to my ordination. I was very weak and disordered in body, yet endeavored to repose my confidence in God. I preached my probation sermon from Acts 26, verses 17 and 18, being a text given me for that end. Afterwards, I passed an examination before the presbytery. My mind was burdened with the greatness of that charge I was about to take upon me, so that I could not sleep this night, though very weary and in great need of rest. Twelfth, 
I was this morning further examined respecting my experimental acquaintance with Christianity. At ten o'clock my ordination was attended. The sermon was preached by Mr. Pemberton. At this time I was affected with a sense of the important trust committed to me, yet was composed and solemn without distraction. And I then, as many times before, gave myself up to God to be for him and not for another. Oh, that I might always be engaged in the service of God and duly remember the solemn charge I have received in the presence of God, angels, and men. Few men, perhaps, ever passed through an ordination service with greater satisfaction to all parties than Brainerd. Mr. Pemberton, in a letter to the Honorable Society in Scotland, by whom he was employed, paid him this just and warm tribute of affection and respect. Quote, we can with pleasure say that Mr. Brainerd passed through his ordination trials to the universal approbation of the presbytery and appeared uncommonly qualified for the work of the ministry. He seems to be armed with a great deal of self-denial and animated with a noble zeal to propagate the gospel among those barbarous nations who have long dwelt in the darkness of heathenism. End, quote. End of chapter 5